This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Trump and Putin and Kavanaugh and Trump. John Nichols has an update on the fight over Trump's Supreme Court nominee. And UCLA law professor Adam Winkler will explore the long and terrible history of how corporations got rights, all the same rights that people have. First up, Maybe you heard the news. On Monday, Trump met with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And before the meeting, the nation released a statement calling for a pronounced shift in the American approach towards Russia. It was signed by two dozen prominent progressives, including Gloria Steinem, Noam Chomsky, John Dean, Governor Bill Richardson, Walter Mosley, Michael Moore, Valerie Plame, and others. For comment, we turn to Katrina Vanden Heuvel. Of course, she's editor and publisher of The Nation and one of the signers of the statement. Katrina, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, we are eager to talk about the Helsinki meeting on Monday. We're taping this on Tuesday. Trump has just spoken to the press with a kind of damage control uh, remarks. But I wanted to start by asking what you were hoping could begin at the Helsinki meeting, what the Common Ground Statement was about. The idea of the Common Ground Statement, John, was it was an intervention at a time when tensions between the U.S. and Russia are the worst they've been since the Cold War. And many Americans are rightly concerned and focused on reports of Russian interference, right, in the 2016 election. But at the same time, escalation of tensions, a hair-trigger military posture, the emergence of a new arms race, have increased the risk of peril, of catastrophic conflict between the two nations. So I was motivated by a a pragmatic approach to address and de-escalate these tensions and the need for a shift in approach toward Russia. It's easy to lose sight of the forest for the trees with all the, you know, terrible news, odious news about Trump, troubling news about Russia. But the open letter tries to encourage us to step back and if one can take a long view, including what's at stake in U.S.-Russian relations for the survival of future generations. And I would simply add, you know, the other thing we lose sight of is one of the great threats to our democracy is the failure of this country to fortify our democracy infrastructure. Our system remains vulnerable, as we've seen to would-be hackers, but we need so much more higher level of security for everything from voter registration to tabulation of ballots with verifiable paper trails. You and I have worked together a long time. How this didn't become a first-class priority after Bush v. Gore in 2000-2001 is still yeah. a mystery to me. But So that the letter is an intervention. And I was pleased that we were able to get, as you suggested, 
a really wide range of people. I mean, progressive luminaries, but also former political officials. Uh, John Dean, formerly Nixon White House Counsel Ambassador Matlock, who was Reagan's ambassador to the Soviet Union. So it was a, Ambassador Bill Richardson, who played a major role as ambassador and governor in the North Korean nuclear talks of a previous era. So what happened in Helsinki was <laughs> whatever happened in Helsinki was completely overshadowed by the press conference that Trump and Putin held. Apparently, they talked about a new treaty to replace the New START treaty, which constrains nuclear weapons and right. is set to expire in 2021. So apparently, they also discussed cooperating on Syria. But the press conference was not about those things. It was instead Trump devoting his time to arguing that, quote, both countries are responsible for Russia's interference in the 2016 election. I guess you could call this a missed opportunity. It's blown <laughs> up into something much bigger. What's your assessment of where we stand uh, here on Tuesday afternoon? Well, you might call it a missed opportunity. You might call it a squandered opportunity. Yeah. Uh, you might call it many things, but it was a remarkably unhinged performance by Donald Trump. And that says a lot. The bar is set high or low. And, you know, he used the global stage not to lay out, John, as you suggested, you know, the priorities you just talked about, but to savage Democrats, attack his own intelligence officials and the Mueller investigation. And there's just this maniacal kind of defense of his legitimacy, right, of the election victory that moves him, it seems. But I will say, even while Trump's serial lies are infamous, he did begin the press conference by making the sensible case that it's better to negotiate than to isolate Russia. He went on to talk a bit about the common stake in reducing tension. So I would say that the press conference was a disaster in many ways. I think Trump should be scorned and reviled for many things, but for simply convening a summit, I would say no. I think that there's still a possibility of moving on some issues, and it's certainly better to have dialogue than it is to isolate at this dangerous moment. The striking thing that happened in the aftermath of the press conference here on Tuesday morning was that the Republican leadership of the House and Senate was much more forthright in challenging Trump and disagreeing with his uh, apparent rejection of the conclusions of his own national security advisors. What do you make of the growing uh, Republican, what shall we call it, the Republican leadership no, distancing itself there, more from Trump? Well, it's not just the leadership. I was struck by Newt Gingrich, who is often a Trump lapdog, that he distanced himself from Trump and said it was the most abject, you know, abasement of a leader before foreign power. I think Trump took it too far yesterday. And I think he may have opened the door to a split in GOP ranks. Now that we've talked about for too many moons, but if several Republicans get away with criticizing him, they may decide they can venture out into critiquing him on tariffs, on more on Russia. And I think GOP candidates will become extremely nervous about how they're supposed to act. You, you could call it a missed opportunity, a squandered opportunity, but what we saw was an opportunity to perhaps open up more divisions in a party which is already divided. Because, John, one thing I found in watching Trump roam across the continent is so much of his bullying 
was designed to play back home, right? As he reconfigures a Republican Party that has been, for better or worse, internationalist. And in the context of reconfiguring a party now in his image as uh, isolationist, ethno-nationalist, bigoted, uh, anti-international institutions, you could see that. And he is working overtime, and that is part of what may blow up in his face. Now, that isn't to say, and I hope your good listeners will check out a special issue of the nation of a couple weeks ago called Needed, a New Foreign Policy, that the default should be what I think of as a failed bipartisan foreign policy position of policing the world, of hypermilitarization, of intervention. Uh, I think we need, we need something quite different. But I think we saw Trump's visit expose the real divisions that have emerged around internationalism. And it was, uh, it was in- interesting in that way. Where the Russia-U.S. relationship goes, it's, it's very hard to see real progress being made, John, even though our open letter is, a, it, in a sense, it's a holding action, because if there's more peril, if there's more conflict around nuclear issues, you know, we already have the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists having moved their doomsday clock ahead for the first time in many years, and they're warning it's as dangerous now as it was at the Cuban Missile Crisis time. So I think one needs to try to halt the conflict and not buy into the idea by the way, that, you know, to meet with someone like Putin is legitimizing the abuses of an authoritarian leader, but in fact is trying to get beyond deepening conflict and rising above that. You are a real expert on Russian politics. You've been studying Russia since the Gorbachev era. What do you think Putin wants out of negotiations with Trump if they were to continue? I I understand Putin for a long time has said he's interested in a new treaty to replace the new START treaty on nuclear weapons control. Yeah, I think think that's a very good question, John. In fact, it's interesting to me how many, let me just say, misconceptions are flying around. A good colleague here, an editor who knows a lot about foreign affairs, emailed me earlier today and said, isn't it creepy that Trump and Putin met alone? And I said, you know, I was at the summit in November 1985 when Gorbachev and Reagan met alone for an hour, took a walk in the woods. Reykjavik, 1986, remember when there was the possibility of a nuclear-free world because Reagan and Gorbachev were alone for an hour before Casper Weinberger, then Defense Secretary, and neocon hawk Richard Pearl barged into the room. But I think with Putin, he wants... Russia to be respected as a power. Uh, He does seek a renewal of the arms control architecture, which was really unraveled in in 2002 when the United States withdrew from the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. I think he'd like to find a way to resolve the Syrian conflict. And I think there's a set of other issues uh, trying to find a way on this peace process in Ukraine, John, which would give eastern Ukraine more autonomy and try to end the violence in that country. And, of course, the original sin, NATO expansion, you can't really end it, though Ben Schwartz, a really smart writer, had a great piece in The Nation a week or so ago about abolishing NATO. I think it's too late. I think at least you put a heavy moratorium on it expanding to Ukraine and Georgia and assure the independence of those countries and that they be a bridge between east and west. And 
What kind of common ground do you think it might be possible to find on Syria? I think on Syria, if you can at least strengthen the deconfliction apparatus so that you don't have accidental strikes or attacks, it's such a brutal, horrific situation, John. But I think if you can stabilize that country, begin a peace process which eases Assad out, which is possible. Russians often talk about a stable government and less about Assad, but begin a humanitarian process, which I understand Putin and the French President Macron talked about, and try to bring people back because the refugee crisis is destabilizing Europe more than, you know, Russia. It is. You know, it's an enormous crisis. I think there are two million Syrian refugees in Lebanon, a million in Jordan, flowing into Europe. The root cause must be uh, you know, addressed. So I hope that could be something. The danger is, as you may have heard, is that Israel, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, pressuring Trump to pressure Putin to rein in Iran. And I don't know where that heads, but I do worry that one of the underreported stories is the desire for war with Iran in Washington, because that unifies forces across the, uh, the spectrum on the Republican side and certainly inside the Trump administration. But I'll tell you what I hope. I hope that at a minimum, and as a progressive, I hope that we can avert more militarization, try to tamp down this new Cold War, because as we've talked about before, John, Cold War is bad for dissent. It narrows space for democratic forces. It strengthens the hand of war parties in all countries, empowers the defense budgeteers, the war profiteers. And this is not to deny that you got authoritarianism and repression, but you also have the need for the space to not be shut down so completely. I will say the open letter was published in Russia's leading oppositionist newspaper, Novaya Gazeta, the newspaper where so many journalists have been killed doing investigative work into abuses of power and corruption in Russia. And I took that as a measure of East-West people of good spirit and good politics trying to say we can come together in trying to seek common ground about secure elections and a true national security. One last thing. The nation sent Sam Husseini to cover the Helsinki summit, but on Monday he was forcibly ejected from the Trump press conference before it began. What can you tell us about that? I would tell you that he's just written a very clear, strong piece explaining what happened. I came as a journalist to ask important questions. If I hadn't been forcibly ejected from the Trump-Putin press conference, Sam writes, here's what I would have asked. He wanted to ask about the state of the nuclear test ban treaty and the failure of these two leaders to really address that treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Sam Husseini is a serious journalist who asks the provocative questions of substance that too often don't get asked, whether at the State Department or at these kinds of press conferences. So uh, I would ask your listeners to go to thenation.com and read a piece that he wrote after being detained and held for too long by Finnish security taken out, and he was shackled, hands and feet, and finally got his phone back, his glasses back after being manhandled in the press conference room and taken out. But I think his question was vital, and the role of journalists as tough questioners, not stenographers to power, is one we need to remember.
Read Sam Husseini's report on what happened to him in Helsinki at thenation.com. And you can read the Common Ground Statement also at thenation.com. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Katrina, it was great to have you on the show today. John, thank you so much. Now it's time to talk about Brett Kavanaugh, Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court to replace swing vote Anthony Kennedy. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's the nation's national affairs correspondent and author most recently of the book Horseman of the Trump Apocalypse. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, John. I guess we're going to have to do a new edition of the book. <laughs> for our Supreme Court nominee here. (laughs) Well, the fact sheet that was released by the administration about Kavanaugh praised him for opposing what they called illegal job-killing regulations that they said had been released by, quote, unaccountable independent agencies, close quote. What are they talking about? Well, what they mean is that even though it sounds like they're endorsing somebody running for a seat in Congress, he's a a, a pro-corporate judicial activist. He's a guy who has, uh, in the better part of a decade, and uh, more than a decade, on the federal bench, uh, tended to rule quite regularly on behalf of uh, corporate interests that don't want to be regulated uh, that don't want to face, you know, basic standards. And one of the areas where this has come up is uh, on the issue of net neutrality, where uh, Brett Kavanaugh is seen as a particularly bad player. And people who have followed the net neutrality fight uh, may not be aware of this, but it, when we battled on behalf of net neutrality over the years, uh, yeah, there was progress on the Federal Communications Commission, and now there's been setbacks. But there's also been a lot of, of uh, judicial uh, work around these issues as well. And so many media issues, many issues of concern as regards media diversity, competition, and you know the, the quality of platforms come before the courts. And that will be increasingly the case in the 21st century. And so to put somebody who is so evidently uh, on the side of the big telecommunications corporations and, frankly, on multinational corporations in general, onto the courts is a really, really bad idea, despite what the president says. So in addition to acting on behalf of the corporations, Kavanaugh has also ruled on voting rights, this case with a South Carolina law that would required voters to show a photo ID what was Brett Kavanaugh's role in that voting rights case? Kavanaugh, uh, the important thing to understand about Kavanaugh is that he doesn't arrive uh, at the federal bench as somebody uh, who hasn't had a lot of intersections with politics. This is a guy who uh, was an active member of the team back in 2000 that intervened on behalf of George W. Bush in the uh, Bush v. Gore uh, fight in Florida. Uh, so he's he's had his hand in this stuff for a long time. He was also a very uh, active, engaged member of the Bush administration for a number of years. Since he's gone on the bench, the signals that we've gotten from him is that he is somebody who, as a you know a 
clear partisan some views you know roots go back into literally partisan campaigns on behalf of the Republican Party, but he sympathizes with their views and, and in fact, has backed them up uh, as regards restrictive voter ID laws, laws yeah. that simply make it harder to cast a ballot, but also as regards a host of other uh, electoral and political interventions that all add up, I think, you know, in the words of an awful lot of critics, to a, a sympathy for voter suppression. And that's the worst kind of person to put on the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh worked for Kenneth Starr, famously on the impeachment investigation of Bill Clinton. He apparently helped draft the part of the Kenneth Starr report arguing that a president could be impeached for lying to the public. Doesn't that seem sort of relevant to the possible impeachment of Donald Trump? It would if Brett Kavanaugh wasn't uh, just an aggressive partisan. Uh, But there's no evidence to suggest that you know, he has kind of deeply held core values as regards the Constitution and the rule of law. The evidence is he's a changeable character, um, <laughs> just depending on the circumstance he's in. And so while he did once argue uh, for a, a very sweeping view of impeachment, one, and you know me, John, I'm a, about as big an advocate for impeachment as you can find, True. Uh, but what he was arguing for back in the in the '90s was went way beyond uh, where I, I think the vast majority of of people who favor presidential accountability might have gone to. Since then, however, he has abandoned his position, and not only abandoned it, he basically said it was a mistake. Um, and intriguingly enough, uh, after his time in the Bush White House, he became one of the more ardent advocates in speeches and in writing uh, for a, a, a remarkable concept that the president should be exempt from criminal prosecutions and criminal investigations while serving in the White House. Uh, this is a really radical construct. Now, of course, presidents have, a, you know, frankly, a lot of flexibility and a lot of leeway, and uh, they are quite well protected. Uh, from nuisance suits and, and you know, nuisance uh, assaults on them from a kind of legal standpoint. But uh, the notion that a president who violates the law or a president who is, is potentially in violation of the law, the notion that that person should somehow be exempt from inquiry into that, I mean, that's, that's really blazing new territory. And while there, you can find some precedents for it, they're not good precedents. Uh, this is bad stuff. And intriguingly enough, Kavanaugh knows where he's at is an extreme position. And so what he has said is, oh, don't worry. Um, what I'm advocating for doesn't really place the president above the law. What it does is it just delays accountability until after he or she is president. Well, with all due respect, you show me somebody else who's in a, in a bad situation with the law where they can say, well, yeah, I got something else I'm doing right now. You know, <laughs> so I don't want to be investigated or held to account. And also, he neglects the reality that the, the president of the United States has the most extensive pardon power, mm. uh, one of the more extensive pardon powers that, that you can imagine, and as such has certainly the ability to pardon people who might uh, be problems for him but also potentially, and some people have argued, even the ability to pardon himself. 
And so what Kavanaugh has argued is an, a terribly extreme position. The president of the United States should essentially be above the law for his or her tenure and potentially beyond it. So where do we stand this week on the effort to mobilize opposition to Kavanaugh's nomination? We know that there are 50 Republicans and 49 Democratic votes in in the Senate. What's the status of the chances of swinging one vote this week? (laughs) Well, the, the good news is that the people who really have to keep an eye on, which is uh, three or four Democrats who are in, are in bed, uh, maybe facing re-election this year. Uh, they, even, while some of them have said things that are, are certainly not encouraging, nobody's come out and said, oh yeah, I'm going to vote for this guy. Okay. Uh, so they remain uh, folks you can, can talk about and talk to. That's very, very important. Uh, and also you continue to have, you know, uh, statements from especially Susan Collins, the Republican from Maine, that, that suggest, uh, you know, a, a desire to uh, to stand up to anybody who's going to really open up the, the issue of the right to choose. And uh, the evidence that's mounting on Kavanaugh is that he is somebody who could be problematic on that issue. And so I think the fight the fight is is real. Um, more evidence is coming out about Kavanaugh. Again, I'll go back to things that I've said in a lot of settings, and that is the way to battle Brett Kavanaugh is to do an all-plus-one approach, right? And that is, yes, talk about all the issues that are threatened, all the, the, the legal precedents that, that putting him on the court could undermine. Uh, and that's the right to choose. That's LGBTQ rights. That's affirmative action, a host of other things where Kennedy provided a critical vote. But also, we should look at this attitude toward presidential powers. At a time when Donald Trump uh, has stirred global controversy and where you see uh, indictments and investigations and inquiries, the notion that you would put someone, that you'd allow Donald Trump to put somebody on the Supreme Court who has this expansive view of presidential power and of presidential exemption from accountability, uh, that should stir concerns, not just among progressives who don't like Trump, but among conservatives. It's, it's an unhealthy precedent. It's an unhealthy step. So I think you communicate all that. And then finally, the most important thing, and this is always the case, you focus on the states and focus on, on a host of issues that may be unique, even peculiar to certain regions, to certain states, so that when you communicate a concern about Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, you don't just simply say to these potential swing senators, uh, you know, yeah, here's the, the three national issues we're concerned about. You also say, here's some local issues that, that you should really be thinking about so that if you do get those Democrats to hold firm against Kavanaugh, and if you get Susan Collins or potentially even Lisa Murkowski to come over, uh, they can ground it. Uh, not merely in national issues, but in concerns of their own constituents. That requires more research. It requires more energy. But it's not wasted research or wasted energy. The fact of the matter is, if you give away a Supreme Court pick, if you just go soft on it, uh, especially one that can shift the center of balance on the court, uh, that's something that can haunt you for generations. And so it's it's an all-in effort. And I I don't see any evidence this week – uh, that it's weakened. In fact, I think some of the revelations about Kavanaugh perhaps strengthen it. It's an all-in effort. 
John Nichols. Read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. Total pleasure, my friend. Now it's time to talk about how corporations won their civil rights. For that, we turn to Adam Winkler. He teaches law at UCLA. He's written for the New York Times, the New York Review, the Washington Post, and other publications. His last book was Gunfight, the Battle Over the Right to Bear Arms in America. His new book is We the Corporations. Adam Winkler, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Well, corporations today have nearly all the same rights as individuals, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, religious liberty, due process, equal protection, freedom from unreasonable searches and seizures, the right to counsel, the right against double jeopardy, the right to trial by jury. The big question is, how did we get here? My understanding after reading your book is that Trump didn't really do any of this. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, 2010 Citizens United highlighted that corporations had already won important rights, like the right to spend their money to influence election. And then in 2014, the Supreme Court followed that up with the Hobby Lobby case, which said corporations have religious freedom under a federal statute and entitled the company to an exemption from a law requiring them to cover birth control and employee plans. Uh, and uh, uh, this sort of raised the question about how did corporations win our most fundamental rights? Uh, and as shocking and, and as disturbing as it may seem, much like women and minorities, corporations were not part of the original promise of we the people, but they have fought for 200 years to win equal rights under the Constitution. Uh, let's talk about the beginning of this. As far as I know, the the real turning point in corporate corporations gaining rights was the 14th Amendment adopted after the civil just after the civil war the purpose was to guarantee equal rights to freed slaves soon it became the basis of equal rights for corporation how did that happen what was the original intent of the authors of the 14th amendment well, the story of how corporations won rights under the 14th Amendment is one of the most remarkable in the history of the whole Supreme Court, I think. Um, uh, and it's not the very first time the Supreme Court dealt with the rights of corporations. The first Supreme Court case on the rights of corporations actually was decided in 1809, a half century before the first Supreme Court cases on the rights of women or racial minorities. Um, uh, but some of the most important and influential decisions were those that came out of a remarkable series of cases brought by the Southern Pacific Railroad company to win rights under the 14th Amendment. This was in the 1880s, and the Southern Pacific Railway, Railroad Company hired an illustrious lawyer by the name of Roscoe Conkling, who had even been nominated and confirmed to sit on the Supreme Court himself, turning down the seat, being the last person ever to turn down a seat on the Supreme Court after having won confirmation. He was simply making too much money as a lawyer for the railroad. <laughs> wow. And uh, he went to the Supreme Court, and he said that the 14th Amendment uh, was drafted not just to protect the freedmen, but also to protect business corporations. And Conkling had been himself one of the drafters of the 14th Amendment. Wow. And it turns, out, it turns out that we know now that Conkling lied to the Supreme Court, that although he was viewed by the justices as a peer, as someone who had been nominated himself and had been a Republican leader, a leader in the Republican Party in Congress for decades, but he lied to the Supreme Court. Eventually, the Supreme Court did accept his argument, though, that the 14th Amendment protected corporations. And in the years to follow, corporations would win much more vibrant protections under the 14th Amendment than African Americans, the 14th Amendment's intended beneficiaries. You said that the first time that corporate that 
corporations were recognized as having civil rights came in 1809. That's, you know, shortly after the founding of, of our country. What argument did they make in 1809? It's the corporations that existed then aren't really very much like American Media, Inc., they aren't really, although the first Supreme Court case on the rights of business corporations was brought to the court um, by one of the most, if not the most powerful and richest corporation in America at the time, at the time, the Bank of the United States, the first bank, which is famous, of course, for giving rise to the two competing political parties as it split Washington's cabinet uh, and giving rise to, I guess, a great rap battle in Hamilton the musical. Um, but the Bank of the United States was set up as a private corporation, and it had stockholders and branches from Boston to New Orleans, and Jeffersonians um, uh, determined were like opponents of Obamacare, and they were determined to kill it by any means necessary, and they passed a tax on the Savannah branch of the bank, and the bank wanted to challenge that tax in federal court, Um, and the question was, did the bank have the right to sue under Article 3 of the Constitution that provides a right of citizens to to sue citizens of other states in federal court? Uh, and uh, although the framers were not thinking about corporations, uh, and the text refers specifically to a right of citizens, the Supreme Court in 1809 uh, read that clause to protect business corporations. It's important to note that in 1857, in the notorious Dred Scott case, the Supreme Court read that exact same provision of Article Three about the right to sue in federal court for citizens, so that could not, uh, that African Americans could not be citizens under the same provision that corporations were protected by. You know, those of us who grew up in the era of the Warren Court, who learned about Brown versus Board of Education, grew up thinking of the Supreme Court as a defender of rights, have been very dismayed that the court in the, you know, the last decade or so has strayed from that path. But you make the point that over the long history of the Supreme Court, the Warren Court is very much the exception. That's right. I mean, when we look back, we see this very long history and tradition of corporations using the court's to expand their power and to overturn laws regulating business. Laws designed to protect consumers or investors or the public at large. Um, But corporations have been uh, really quite adept at this. Uh, And it's true the Warren Court um, is one that that had an unusual um, consciousness of racial justice and access to justice and equal rights. Um, But the Supreme Court, um, despite being liberal and conservative during various times in its history, has almost always been very business-friendly. One of the surprising things I find about even the Warren Court is that the Warren Court also expanded the rights of business corporations uh, and did so um, uh, in order to protect liberal values like the freedom of the press. When you think about one of the most important First Amendment cases ever decided was New York Times versus Sullivan giving, recognizing the right to criticize public officials. That case was brought in the name of a corporation by a corporation, the New York Times Company. And if you think about it, what is The Post, the popular movie today, uh, but a movie about a for-profit business corporation, a newspaper, that was asserting its constitutional rights. And indeed, uh, American Media Inc. Uh, claims to have the same rights as the Washington Post, and I guess we uh, we all accept that today, that the Supreme Court can't distinguish between the National Enquirer and the Washington Post in terms of their rights. 
And maybe it shouldn't distinguish between the Washington Post and the National Enquirer, both corporations that are devoted to the publication of the printed word, whereas perhaps what the Supreme Court has lost sight of is the distinction between media corporations like newspapers and outlets that uh, really contribute to that democratic deliberation and checking of government uh, and uh, advertisements by Exxon uh, or uh, Mobile Oil or uh, other big corporations spending shareholders' money to promote a partisan view of politics. You show how ingenious, how bold the attorneys for corporations have been. Citizens United is one of the most striking cases here where the issue became not just the rights of Citizens United to say whatever they wanted to say, but the rights of of the audience, of us, of, of readers and listeners, to hear what different people have to say. Remind us of uh, how, the, how that story developed. Well, it's really one of uh, a really surprising uh, counterintuitive story in some ways, which is that Ralph Nader uh, in some ways did more to advance the cause of business speech rights than anyone. Now, I have in to say United... that that's really blasphemy. I know, but, let's, but let me tell you the story, and you can judge for yourself. Okay. I mean, obviously, <laughs> Ralph Nader was, uh, was focusing on helping the rights of consumers in the 1970s. Yes. Uh, and, uh, and Nader w- took a landmark case to the Supreme Court um, uh, that challenged restrictions on pharmacists' ability to advertise drug prices. Uh, and he wasn't trying to help out the pharmacists or the businesses that wanted to advertise. He was trying to help out the consumers. And so he argued to the Supreme Court that the consumers had rights to hear what the pharmacists would say in their advertisements. Yeah. And the Supreme Court said yes. yes. In that case, yeah, that case established what's known as the commercial speech doctrine, and it gave corporations the right to advertise. And since then, that right has been used far more on behalf of business corporations to challenge restrictions on their advertising and on uh, disclosure requirements uh, than it has been by consumers seeking to get access to information. And in fact, um, uh, the current head of Public Citizen uh, recently wrote an article arguing for a constitutional amendment eliminating all rights for corporations, uh, which of course in many ways stemmed from this really important uh, case. And, uh, and I say that, remember, in Citizens United, the Supreme Court majority opinion specifically harkened back to that listener's rights theory of the First Amendment, first established by Ralph Nader's lawsuit um, back in the 1970s. So it is a sign of how there's sometimes unintended consequences to reform, and corporations have been really effective at leveraging reforms in the Constitution designed for progressive ends to serve the ends of capital. So it's not a criticism of Ralph Nader as much as a story of how corporations have been successful at manipulating and exploiting even the work of Ralph Nader to advance the cause of business. You've convinced us it wasn't Ralph's fault. And what today are the most important initiatives on on that front to to restore equal justice under the law as opposed to the realities of corporate power? 
Well, there's, uh, you know, a lot of efforts. Uh, uh, there's an effort, for instance, to amend the Constitution, to declare that corporations are not people and have no rights under the Constitution. This has been um, endorsed uh, by about 19 states, um, uh, and that could go forward and amend the Constitution to overturn the Supreme Court's uh, decisions. I think it's probably uh, a very uh, tough call for that to happen, and maybe uh, something we might not want to happen if it means that media corporations uh, like the Washington Post or uh, CNN could be, uh, or KPFK could be uh, uh, shut down uh, uh, and claim, uh, with the government saying you have no rights because you're a corporation. Um, So there are moves, uh, and uh, like I say, I think these uh, Facebook hearings have revealed how private corporations are really taking all of our information and gaining so much intimate information about us that eventually we're going to have to impose privacy norms on those private corporations if we want to guarantee the values that the founders sought to protect with the Fourth Amendment, guaranteeing your uh, papers, houses, uh, and effects uh, from unreasonable searches and seizures. And let us acknowledge it's not just the ACLU which is concerned about uh, the excesses of uh, corporate power and the defense of the rights of individuals. Barack Obama, I believe, made an important statement about the corporation's uh, legal status during the uh, Romney, his campaign against Mitt Romney. You want to remind us about that little exchange? Well, of course, Romney was became notorious for saying, corporations are people, my friend, at the Iowa State Fair. That was way back when, when a gaffe actually sidetracked a presidential candidate, uh, unlike today, where it seems you can say anything. But that one gaffe really defined his campaign, um, and it was uh, thought to be really insensitive to uh, corporations. President Barack Obama weighed in on this issue many times, saying that no matter how many times you try to explain it, people are people. Corporations are not people. And of course, there was that one incident where uh, at the State of the Union address, where Barack Obama was confronted uh, by the Supreme Court justices sitting right there in the front row, uh, and he argued right to them that he thought their decision in Citizens United was uh, wrongly decided and would open the floodgates for money, including money from foreign influences, to shape our elections. Uh, And indeed, right now, one of the biggest scandals we're seeing is about the effort of foreign countries to try to influence our elections. Adam Winkler, his new book is We the Corporations. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Finally, the nation's World Cup soccer wrap-up. That's the topic of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. Dave will be talking about the politics of the French team. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts. 
at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.